Part 2 The Historical Context of the Liberal 6. The French Revolution When Liberals Attack To understand liberals, one must understand the French Revolution. It's difficult to track the precise chronology of the French Revolution because there is no logic to it, as there never is with a mob. Basically, the mob would hear a rumor, get ginned up, and then run out and start beheading people. Imagine Code Pink with pikes. From beginning to end, the French Revolution was a textbook case of the behavior of mobs. As Le Bon described mobs about a century after the French Revolution, a throng knows neither doubt nor uncertainty. Like women, it goes at once to extremes. A suspicion transforms itself as soon as announced into incontrovertible evidence. A commencement of antipathy, of disapprobation, which in the case of an isolated individual would not gain strength, become at once furious hatred in the case of an individual in a crowd. Liberals don't like to talk about the French Revolution because it is the history of them. They lyingly portray the American Revolution as if it, too, were a revolution of the mob, but merely to state the signposts of each reveals their different character. The American Revolution had the Minutemen, the Ride of Paul Revere, the Continental Congress, the Declaration of Independence, and the Liberty Bell. The markers of the French Revolution were the Great Fear, the Storming of the Bastille, the Food Riots, the March on Versailles, the Day of the Daggers, the De-Christianization Campaign, the Storming of the Tuileries, the September Massacres, the Beheading of Louis XVI, the Beheading of Marie Antoinette, the Reign of Terror, and then the guillotining of one revolutionary after another, until finally the mob's leader, Robespierre, got the national razor. That's not including random insurrections, lynchings, and assassinations that occurred throughout the four-year period known as the French Revolution. Here are the highlights of the French Revolution to give you the flavor of the lunacy. As with most rampages during France's revolution, the storming of the Bastille was initiated by a rumor. The mob began to whisper that the impotent, indecisive Louis XVI was going to attack the National Assembly, which had replaced the Estates General. For some reason, the people were particularly enraged over the king's firing of his inept finance minister, who had nearly bankrupted the country with Fannie Mae-style accounting. The rabble needed weapons to defend themselves from this imaginary attack on their new populist assembly. Massing in the streets for days after the presentation of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen to the assembly, the people became more and more agitated. By the morning of July 14, 1789, about 60,000 French peasants armed with pikes and axes were running back and forth between the Hôtel de Ville, town hall, and Les Invalides, a barracks for aging soldiers, demanding weapons and ammunition. Finally, the mob broke through the gates of the Anvilides and ransacked the building, seizing ten cannon and 28,000 muskets, but could find no ammunition. Then they rushed off to the Bastille for ammunition, and also because they considered the Bastille an eyesore.
Once a fortress, then a jail, the Bastille was in the process of being shut down. It held only six prisoners that day. But the Parisian mob irrationally feared the Bastille based on its menacing appearance and false rumors of torture within its walls. With legions of Parisians banging on the gates of the Bastille and demanding ammunition, the prison's commander, Marquis de Launay, invited representatives of the mob inside to negotiate over breakfast. They requested that the cannon be removed from the towers because mounted guns frightened the people. Delaunay agreed, and the cannon were withdrawn. Meanwhile, the mob outside became more frenzied, believing that their representatives inside, lingering over breakfast, had been taken hostage. The mob interpreted the withdrawal of the cannon to mean that the cannon were being loaded in preparation for firing into the crowd. As the mob grew larger and angrier, the Bastille's guards warned them to disperse, shooing them away by waving their caps and threatening to fire. The people interpreted the waving of hats as encouragement to continue the attack. And so it went, with periodic gunplay interrupted only by the Bastille's commander's repeated attempts to surrender. The mob secured its own cannon and began firing at the prison, hacking at the drawbridge, and scaling walls into the courtyard of the Bastille. Facing tens of thousands of angry citizens, Delaunay made a final offer to surrender total control of the Bastille to the mob, provided it be accomplished peacefully. He threatened to blow up the entire city block unless his demand for a bloodless transition was agreed to. His offer was refused amid angry cries of no capitulation and down with the bridge. Delaunay surrendered anyway. The mob poured in and ransacked the entire fortress, throwing papers and records from the windows, killing some guards, and taking others as prisoners. One captured guard who was marched through the street said there were masses of people shouting at me and cursing me as women gnashed their teeth and brandished their fists at me. Delaunay was triumphantly paraded through the streets of Paris with the people cutting him with swords and bayonets until he was finally hacked to death, whereupon the charming Parisians continued to mutilate his dead body. A cook was given the honor of cutting off Delaunay's head, which he accomplished with a pocket knife, kneeling on his hands and knees in the gutter to do it. Delaunay's head, along with the head of a city official, Jacques de Flessel, who had failed to assist the mob's search for weapons that day, were stuck on pikes and waltzed through the streets of Paris for more celebratory jeering. This is the revolutionary event celebrated by the French, the murderous barbarism of a mob, or, as Parisians called it, Tuesday. The incident at the Bastille was merely a particularly aggressive version of the rampaging and pillaging they had been doing for weeks, all based on this or that rumor. Apart from the feral viciousness of the attack on the Bastille, the madness of it was that the Third Estate, peasants and the middle class, had already won themselves a republic. Under the old system, the French people had had a legitimate grievance. The Third Estate, composed of the great mass of citizens, paid all the taxes but got none of the government jobs.
Those were reserved for the non-taxpaying nobility and clergy. It was much like rich Democrats today. Tim Geithner, who failed to pay Social Security and Medicare taxes, but was still confirmed as Obama's Treasury Secretary. U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill, Democrat, Missouri, who failed to pay two hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars in taxes on a private plane. Tom Daschle proposed Obama nominee to be Health and Human Services Department Secretary, who failed to pay all his taxes. Nancy Kilifer proposed Obama nominee to be White House Chief Performance Officer, who failed to pay all her taxes. Zoe Baird proposed Clinton nominee as Attorney General, who failed to pay all her taxes. And Charlie Rangel, Democratic Congressman, censured by the House Ethics Committee for failure to pay all his taxes. When the third estate walked out on the estates general and formed the new classless National Assembly, asserting that only it could make laws, and the king recognized this new legislative body, they had won. Nonetheless, the people decided the utterly pointless attack on the Bastille had been a tremendous success. And so, a few months later, Parisian peasant women decided to storm the Palace of Versailles and murder the Queen Marie Antoinette. As Alexander Hamilton politely warned American revolutionary hero the Marquis de Lafayette after the storming of the Bastille, I dread the vehement character of your people, whom I fear you may find it more easy to bring on than to keep within proper bounds after you have put them in motion. Initially, the mob had worshipped Maria Antonia, the Austrian princess, christened Marie Antoinette upon her arrival in France to marry the future king Louis Auguste. Antoinette was young, only fifteen years old, slender, fair, and beautiful. Mobs like that sort of thing, so the people worshipped her. When Antoinette made her first public appearance in Paris, the cheering crowds were so thick her carriage was frequently stopped for an hour at a time. The besotted Parisians presented the princess with flowers, fruits, salutes, and speeches all along her ride. Most enthusiastic were the common people. As Antoinette stood on a balcony, gasping in astonishment at the throng cheering her, a nobleman, Maréchal de Brissac, told her, "You have before you two hundred thousand persons who have fallen in love with you." When Louis Auguste assumed the throne a few years later, the masses hailed a new era of youth, freedom, hope, and change under their twenty-year-old king and nineteen-year-old queen. Though the new king and queen had done nothing and promised nothing, the masses adored them, putting their portrait up in all the shop windows. They were the French Obamas. But as so often happens with mobs, the people's passionate love would soon turn into equally passionate hate, as described by Le Bon. Mobs only entertain violent and extreme sentiments, so sympathy quickly becomes adoration, and antipathy, almost as soon as it is aroused, is transformed into hatred. 
One sees traces of the phenomenon today in liberals' love to hate feelings toward Hillary Clinton, John McCain, Tony Blair, Joe Lieberman, Israel, the Supreme Court, wood-burning fireplaces, free speech, cigarettes, and warm weather. Liberals went from love to hate with Christopher Hitchens when he attacked Clinton, but then he won them back with his attack on God. What a Cinderella story! Inflamed by ugly gossip as well as food shortages and fiscal crises, the crowd began to detest the queen. She was called Lotrichienne, meaning the Austrian, but with the stress on Chienne, meaning bitch. In pamphlets and gossip, Antoinette was accused of being a nymphomaniac and a lesbian, of holding sex orgies in the palace, and of engaging in unnatural acts with her dog and infant son. Antoinette was nearly the exact opposite of the image invented by the mob and passed down in popular mythology. She was genuine, charitable, kind, and good-natured. More like Audrey Hepburn in *Roman Holiday* than Hillary Clinton pocketing the White House silverware. She was not given to excess, avoided ostentation in her decorating style, and was compassionate toward the poor. Antoinette eliminated the class-based segregated seating at the royal palace and often invited children from working-class neighborhoods to dine with her children. This lovely woman with the gentle eyes, as Antoinette biographer Stefan Zweig called her, told her mother that what had touched her most about the cheering crowd for her in Paris was the affection and zeal of the poor people, which, though crushed with taxation, was overflowing with joy at the sight of us. She called such love infinitely precious. Even years later, when the masses abused her. Marie Antoinette still described them charitably as persons who declare themselves well-intentioned, but who do and will continue to do us harm. Marie Antoinette never uttered the words "Let them eat cake." Fittingly, that phrase came from the revolutionary's philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who claimed he overheard it on the lips of some nameless princess. This was written in his Confessions, sometime before 1769, back when Maria Antonia was still a preteen making mud strudels in Austria. But the masses were upset by a hailstorm that had damaged the crops and impaired the food supply, so the French seized on this myth, and it has lived on forevermore. Just as it will live on forevermore that Dan Quayle apologized on a trip to Latin America that he never learned to speak Latin, the mob was riled up. There was no time for calm reflection or consideration of the evidence, and so on October fifth, seventeen eighty-nine, angry fishmongers and other working-class women stormed Versailles Palace, intent on offing the Queen. Called eight thousand Judiths, the rabble included some men dressed like women. They were armed with pikes, axes, and a few cannon, hollering that they would cut the queen's pretty throat and tear her skin to bits for ribbons. Rallying outside the palace all day, by evening the rabble was half naked, having taken their clothes off on account of the rain, much like the audience at a Rage Against the Machine concert. 
early in the morning, around 2 a.m., a gaggle of women broke into the palace, decapitating two guards on the way. They made a wild dash toward Antoinette's bedroom, shouting, Where is the whore? Death to the Austrian! We'll wring her neck! We'll tear her heart out! I'll fry her liver, and that won't be the end of it! I'll have her thighs! I'll have her entrails! The dulcet shrieks of the fishmongers call to mind George Washington exhorting his men, Remember, officers and soldiers, that you are free men, fighting for the blessings of liberty, that slavery will be your portion and that of your posterity if you do not acquit yourselves like men. This was not the American Revolution. The queen fled her bedroom one step ahead of the howling mob. The crazed women proceeded to smash all the mirrors in the queen's boudoir and slash her bed to bits. After a standoff between the palace and the mob, the king capitulated, and the royal family was marched to the Tuileries Palace in Paris by triumphant Hoi Polloi. Leading the procession were the heads of the decapitated guards bouncing along on pikes. The king and his family were effectively put under house arrest at the Tuileries, with a guard stationed in Marie Antoinette's room at all times, even when she dressed and slept. The family would never see Versailles again. The king signed a new constitution relinquishing most of his power, and the French people lived in liberty and happiness from that moment ever after. No, wait, it didn't happen that way. The political clubs, once gentlemen's debating societies, suddenly assumed actual political importance during the Revolution. The Jacobin Club went from being a prestigious institution of distinguished individuals with little power to a motley collection of left-wing radicals that launched the monstrous revolutionary leader Maximilien Robespierre. Soon, respectable members quit the Jacobin Club, leaving only the reprobates behind, much as happened to the American Bar Association in the 1980s. On the one-year anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, some of the political clubs built model Bastilles so that they could again be sacked by the people. If there had been a Franklin Mint back then, the storming of the Bastille chess sets would have been a bestseller. The rabble, often led by the Jacobins, proceeded to smash every trace of the past—religion, law, the social order, eventually even the weights and measuring system, and, most absurdly, the calendar— on November 2nd, 1789, just a month after the storming of the Tuileries, the assembly declared everything owned by the Catholic Church to be property of the state. Three months later, the assembly severed the French Catholic Church's relations with the Pope, dismissed about 50 bishops, dissolved all clerical vows, reorganized the Church under the civil constitution, with priests to be elected by popular vote, and required all the clergy to swear an oath of loyalty to the state. Convents and monasteries were seized and turned into prisons to house any recalcitrant royals and priests. A few years later, the assembly would pass a law forbidding priests to be seen in public wearing clerical garb. 
Having a general idea where this godless fanaticism was headed, the royal family attempted to flee Paris on June twentieth, seventeen ninety-one. They got lost and stopped to ask directions from a young boy, whom the king tipped with a gold louis d'or. The boy recognized the king from his visage on the coin and quickly ratted out the fleeing royals to revolutionary authorities. The royal family was marched back to the Tuileries under a rain of stones, with effigies of the king dangling from trees along their path. A few months after the royal family's flight, the leftist Jacobins and the comparatively moderate Girondists forced the king to sign yet another new constitution. Louis the Sixteenth was reduced to a mere figurehead and a prisoner. The mob had no fear of punishment, certainly not from Louis the Sixteenth, the David Dinkins of monarchs. So they exploded in animalistic fury. The bourgeoisie had riled up the masses to storm the Bastille and Versailles. Now they would pay the price, as historian Eric Dershmide says. The king had been the only constitutional instrument that could stand up to the extremists, but now the moderates had opened the door to raging madmen willing to use mob brutality. On August tenth, seventeen ninety-two, Parisians were out of sorts over more military setbacks in France's war with Austria and Germany, not to mention the absence of an exit strategy. So an armed mob stormed the Tuileries, forcing the royal family to flee to the National Assembly for safety. From there, the weak king, frightened by the sound of cannon fire, ordered the Swiss guards who were defending him to surrender. This strategy, known as unilateral surrender, would later become the cornerstone of the Democratic Party's national security policies. Refusing to believe such an insane command, the guards' commander went to see the king for himself, telling him, "The rabble is on the run. We must vigorously pursue them." Minutes ticked by with Louis the Sixteenth unable to make a decision. This was the king, after all, who had written in his diary the day of the storming of the Bastille, July fourteenth, nothing. Finally, he repeated his surrender order. The incredulous commander demanded that it be put in writing. The king wrote, "We order our Swiss to put down their arms immediately and withdraw to their barracks." Louis, ordered by the king to surrender, more than six hundred Swiss guards were savagely murdered. The mobs ripped them to shreds and mutilated their corpses. Women, lost to all sense of shame, said one surviving witness, were committing the most indecent mutilations on the dead bodies, from which they tore pieces of flesh and carried them off in triumph. Children played kickball with the guards' heads. Every living thing in the Tuileries was butchered or thrown from the windows by the hooligans. Women were raped before being hacked to death. The Jacobin Club, the MSNBC of the French Revolution, demanded that the piles of rotting, defiled corpses surrounding the Tuileries be left to putrefy in the street for days afterward, as a warning to the people of the power of the extreme left. This was easily arranged, as it coincided with a national strike by Paris's garbage collectors.
The next day, foreign ambassadors fled France. This bestial attack, it was later decreed, would be celebrated every year as the Festival of the Unity and Indivisibility of the Republic. It would be as if families across America delighted in the annual TV special, A Manson Family Christmas. Back at the National Assembly, the king was arrested and the last flickers of the monarchy extinguished. King Louis XVI would henceforth be known as Citizen Louis Capet. This time, the royal family was locked up in the filthy temple prison. Mobs gathered outside night and day, refining their nuanced political philosophy by chanting, Death to the King. Executive authority was vested in the new national convention, elected by all the people, including foreigners such as Thomas Paine, but no women, which is the only fact taught about the French Revolution in American schools today. Maximilien de Robespierre, future president of the convention, was the first among equals in the revolution, the engine of the terror, who argued, following Rousseau, that a republic of virtue could only be achieved by virtue combined with terror. Alas, the French got mostly terror. He and his fellow Jacobins took the seats high up at the convention, for which they were nicknamed the Montagnards, or the Mountaineers. With the royal family rotting in the temple prison, the mob ran wild. Depressed by the news of their army's defeat at Verdun, the French went on a murderous rampage in the fall of 1792, known as the September Massacres. Propagandists of the revolution warned that traitors to the revolution were planning a comeback from their jail cells and must be given prompt justice. Revolutionary star Jean-Paul Marat wrote in his newspaper titled L'Ami du Peuple, Friend of the People, Let the blood of the traitors flow. That is the only way to save the country. On September 2nd, 1792, a revolutionary mob on the outskirts of Paris surrounded a caravan of 24 clergymen being transported to prison and began slashing at the priests through the windows of the carts. One assailant brandished his bloody sword toward onlookers and shouted, So this frightens you, does it, you cowards? You must get used to the sight of death. At some point, an ascetic priest emerged and tried to calm the ruffians, a few of whom were his own parishioners. He was promptly hacked to death. The rest of the mob joined in the slaughter until all the carts were dripping with blood. The gruesome caravan, full of mangled carcasses, loped along to the prison where another crowd was waiting to butcher any priests who had managed to survive the first attack. About the same time, another mob besieged a Carmelite convent in Paris, where 150 priests were being given revolutionary trials. Armed with guns, clubs, pikes, and axes, the hoodlums shot the first priest to approach them and demanded to see the archbishop. After saying a prayer, the archbishop presented himself and was immediately chopped to death by the crowd, whereupon the assailants began indiscriminately murdering all the priests. 
Some priests escaped to a nearby church just long enough to give one another last rites before the barbarians burst in and began chopping them up, too. After the first few batches of clergymen had been killed, the revolutionaries decided to hold mock trials for those who remained. One by one, the priests were called to a makeshift court presided over by a grimy, sans-culotte ruffian named Citizen Maillard. Most of the sans-culottes were lawyers and journalists who dressed like peasants, without the culottes or knee-breeches worn by gentlemen, but Maillard was the real thing. He ordered the priests to swear loyalty to the state. Not one would take the heretical oath. And so, one after another, the clerics were dragged to the courtyard and sliced to pieces. Their bodies were dumped in fields or down a well, where, seventy years later, 119 skeletons were discovered. This account was provided by the only survivor of the massacre, Abbe Sicard. One deputy of the convention, Jean-Denis Langeuinet, estimated that 8,000 Frenchmen were executed on September 2nd alone. Another deputy, Jean-Baptiste Louvet de Couvray, put the number at 28,000. Rabid bands of men continued the savagery for the next five days, busting into nearly every prison in Paris and carving up the inmates. Not just priests, but all prisoners were killed, the poor, the mad, women, old men, and even young girls. Waiting their turns, locked in their cells, the prisoners could hear the screams of those who preceded them. The mob spared only two prisons, one for prostitutes and one for debtors, the mob's base. At one prison, La Conciergerie, 378 of 488 prisoners were murdered in one day. The killers chopped up humans without pause, except to eat and drink the provisions brought to them by their wives to help the men in their hard labors. Revolutionary women would sit on the sidelines, enjoying the butchery and cheering the men on. As the bodies piled up, women would poke the corpses and make ribald jokes. Some grabbed severed body parts, such as ears, to wear as decorations. One revolutionary thug, carved into a nobleman's chest, pulled out the heart and asked, Do you want to see the heart of an aristocrat? He then squeezed some of the blood from the heart into his wine goblet, drank it, and invited others to drink from it, too. One young girl was forced to drink the human blood to save the life of her father. The great attraction of the September massacres, according to French historian G. Le Nôtre, was the grotesque execution of Marie Gredelet, a prisoner accused of murder. She was bound to a post, her breasts chopped off, and her feet nailed spread-eagle on the ground, and a bonfire was lit between her legs. But for my money, the most chilling murder of the September massacres was that of Princess Lamballe. This wealthy young widow had been Marie Antoinette's best friend and superintendent of the Queen's household. For the Jacobins, she was the Karl Rove of the Louis XVI administration.
The mob accused the prudish and sensitive princess of all sorts of monstrous depredations, including a lesbian affair with the queen. After the mob attacked the Tuileries in August 1792, Lamballe had been moved to La Force prison away from the royal family. A year earlier, the princess had gone to England to appeal to the British to save the French monarchy. She had returned to France out of sheer loyalty to Marie Antoinette. The fact that she wrote her last will and testament while in England suggests she had an inkling of what was to come. On September 3, 1792, Princess Lamballe was dragged from her prison cell and brought before a revolutionary tribunal presided over by the brute Jacques Hébert. Hébert had nothing but admiration for the sacrilegious excesses of the revolution, cheerfully announcing that the universe would soon contain nothing but a regenerated and enlightened family of atheists and republicans. He demanded that the princess swear devotion to liberty and to the nation, and hatred to the king and queen, threatening her with death if she refused. Lamballe replied that she would take the first oath, but never the second, because it is not in my heart. The king and queen I have ever loved and honored. In the next instant, she was thrown to the howling mob, gang raped, and sliced to pieces. Her head, breasts, and genitalia were chopped off by the sans culottes multitude, and her mangled, mutilated corpse was put on public display for the crowd to jeer at and further defile. One beast cut out her heart and ate it after having roasted it on a cooking stove in a wine shop. One of her legs was hacked off and fired from a cannon. Her head was taken to a cafe and placed on a table for the patrons to laugh at. The princess's head and genitalia were then stuck on pikes and paraded past Marie Antoinette's prison window, with the mob shouting for Antoinette to kiss her lover. Isn't that what George Washington would have done? The convention decreed that France was a republic on September twenty-first, seventeen ninety-two. One week later, the renowned seventy-three-year-old French author Jacques Cazot was guillotined for counter-revolutionary writings. According to two contemporaneous accounts, in September seventeen ninety-two, a Jacobin named Philip presented a box to the legislative assembly containing the heads of his mother and father, whom he said he had slain in a burst of patriotism because they refused to attend a revolutionary church. This was not a revolution that was likely to end, as the American Revolution did, with the motto "Anuit coiptis," he, God, has favored our undertakings, on its national seal. Being insane totalitarians, the French revolutionaries were anxious to inflict their ideas on other perfectly nice countries. In November 1792, the convention issued the Edict of Fraternity, calling on people in other countries to overthrow their rulers. By the end of 1792, the Jacobins were demanding the king's head. Louis the Sixteenth had already tried to flee Paris, but the French wouldn't let him.
The entire royal family had been held captive under constant guard behind multiple locked doors in the temple prison for four months, and in the Tuileries before that. But that wasn't enough. Louis XVI was such an object of hatred for the masses that, at some revolutionary clubs, members with the hideous name Louis were forced to change their names to Montagnard as a tribute to the most liberal political faction. The trial of Louis XVI, or citizen Louis Capet, took place in December 1792 before the entire National Convention. Erstwhile, American patriot Thomas Paine attended as a member of the convention. Unknown to the hapless Paine, he was watching the original show trial. Citizen Capet was charged with a series of crimes that he knew, as did his accusers, he had never been party to. Of course, the principal accusation against him was treason for having been king. Although it was not a crime to be so until that very moment, Robespierre was putatively opposed to capital punishment, but like our liberal friends, he was willing to make exceptions on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on the defendant. Fiercely championing death for the king, he argued that even holding a trial was counter-revolutionary, the French version of politically incorrect. Robespierre said that Citizen Capet was a criminal toward humanity, and killing him was merely a measure of public safety. The king must die, he said, because the country must live. Johnny Cochran's summations made more sense. The convention debated the king's fate much the way the UCLA faculty debated a resolution to condemn the Iraq War five days after the fall of Baghdad, one hundred eighty-four seven against, wild applause. After a unanimous vote of guilt, the convention then debated whether Louis Capet would be sentenced to detention, deportation, or death. Give us the head of that fat pig! Yelled the Jacobins. The nation demands his death. Thousands of the sans culottes ruffians poured into the streets during the trial, shouting for the king's death, because this is how liberals participate in civic affairs. Some wandered inside to the public seats in the upper balconies to cheer deputies who called for death and heckle those leaning toward imprisonment. Seeing the bloodthirsty mobs in the streets, Madame Roland, a supporter of the revolution, commented wryly, "What charming freedom we now enjoy in Paris!" The vote inside went back and forth for seventy-two hours, indicating that even the French revolutionaries were more even-handed than the typical college faculty. Finally, the king's own cousin, with the promising revolutionary name Philippe Egalité, swung the vote by standing and saying, "I vote death." The convention ordered the king to be guillotined the following day. So, on January twenty-first, seventeen ninety-three, Louis the Sixteenth became the only French king ever to be executed. It will not surprise close observers of the left to learn that the deputies had engaged in vote fraud, with thirteen votes cast illegally, including that of the bloodthirsty Angel of Death, Louis Antoine Léon de Saint Just, who was too young to vote.
The night before his execution, the king said goodbye to his family, giving his children religious instruction and telling them to forgive his assassins. The next morning, at 5 a.m., he took communion. A few hours after that, the drums began. Hearing the drums signaling the coming execution, Louis XVI's priest said his blood ran cold. Arriving to take the king to the guillotine was a former priest, Jacques Roux, who had renounced his faith and joined the most radical revolutionary sect, the Enrages, or the Rabid. The king handed him a package containing some personal effects and his last will and testament, asking that it be given to his wife. Roux responded, I have not come here to do your errands. I am here to take you to the scaffold. The king was taken by cart to the guillotine, trailed by a sneering, catcalling mob. After having his hands bound and his hair cut above the nape of his neck, King Louis XVI ascended the platform, motioned for the drummers to pause, and began to address the crowd. He said, I die innocent of all the crimes imputed to me. I pardon the authors of my death, and pray God that the blood you are about to shed will never fall upon France. But like an audience of college liberals, the audience began shouting and the drummers resumed their banging, so the king could no longer be heard. They could hear the king any old time, whereas who knew when they might get to yell and hit drums again? Once the guillotine blade fully severed the king's thick neck, an attendant yanked the head from a basket and waved it before the crowd while making obscene gestures. The people whooped and cheered, threw their hats in the air, and lined up to dip their handkerchiefs in the king's blood. His carcass was dumped in a pit and the body dissolved with lime. Within the next year, the king's backstabbing cousin, Mr. Equality, Philippe Egalité, would himself be guillotined with the less illustrious final remark, Merde. Madame Roland was also executed after bowing to the Statue of Liberty next to the guillotine, saying, O oh, Liberty, what crimes are committed in your name? Thomas Paine would narrowly escape the guillotine and be imprisoned instead. On the one-year anniversary of the king's execution, the revolutionaries presided over fetes of celebration, including one in Grasse that featured the guillotining of a Louis XVI mannequin. They had executed a king, but the French had not yet begun the reign of terror. The fact that, after all this, the terror was still to come begins to explain why all the bloody totalitarian dictatorships of the 20th century have drawn inspiration from Rousseau and the French Revolution. 7. The French Revolution Part de Come for the Beheadings, Stay for the Rapes 
By June of 1793, the radical Jacobins had seized total control of the convention and begun instituting left-wing government policies such as price controls and a general draft. Yet another constitution was adopted by the convention and then immediately suspended by the convention. Instead, a revolutionary government was decreed until the peace. Robespierre dominated the tyrannical and ironically named Committee of Public Safety. Similarly, in 2003, Libya was made chairman of the UN's Commission on Human Rights. Thus began the reign of terror, purging all enemies of the revolution. The enforcers, Robespierre and his allies, demanded death to traitors, spies, moderates, and anyone who disagreed with Robespierre. Saint-Just, Robespierre's ally on the Committee of Public Safety, called for unlimited war, saying the Republic owes the good citizens its protection. To the bad ones, it owes only death. There were up to 50 executions a day by a guillotine set up next to the Statue of Liberty in the Place de la Révolution, formerly Place Louis XV. More than 3,000 aristocrats were sent to the guillotine with huge crowds on hand to cheer the carnage. The victims often had to be dragged up the stairs of the scaffold. Programs called menus were distributed, listing the names of the condemned, the better to heckle the condemned. Street jugglers entertained the crowds by staging mock executions with puppets. With the Jacobins in control, the de-Christianization campaign kicked into high gear in 1793. Inspired by Rousseau's idea of the religion civile, The revolution sought to completely destroy Christianity and replace it with a religion of the state, to honor reason and fulfill the promise of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen that no one may be questioned about his opinions, including his religious views. Catholic priests were forced to stand before revolutionary clubs and take oaths to France's new humanocentric religion, the Cult of Reason, which is French for People for the American Way. Only a bare majority of clergy called non-jurors refused to take oaths to the Republic. About 20,000 priests did so, and another 20,000 left the country. Many ex-priests publicly denounced their religion, swearing they had never believed it, and vied with each other in ribaldry and blasphemy. Vicar Patin stood in front of a revolutionary club and said the earmarks of a priest were to bestialize humans in order to better enslave them, to make them believe that two plus one is one and a thousand other absurdities, to enter into a compact with our former tyrants to share with them spoils taken from the people. Revolutionaries smashed church art and statues. One explained that he'd broken the noses of church statues because they were hideous apes that deserved to be crushed and used for pavement. At the Cathedral of Notre Dame, hundreds of medieval sculptures of prophets, priests, and kings were yanked from their pedestals and decapitated or hurled in the Seine. The cathedral's priceless 13th and 14th century stained glass windows were smashed.
Notre Dame fared better than the Third Abbey Church at Cluny, once the most magnificent monastery in the world. Revolutionaries torched the archives and sacked the Romanesque building, leaving behind nothing but a pile of rubble. The word vandalism had to be invented to describe the wanton destruction of the Abbey Church of Saint-Denis. Revolutionaries defaced the prized Gothic architecture, trashing archaeological treasures dating from the 7th century. They ripped open the tombs and threw the skeletons of kings and queens into lime pits, deeming any gold and silver held by the churches an insult to reason. The revolutionaries stole it, either for the national melting pot or for their personal use. Churches that were not burned to the ground were turned into headquarters for some of the revolutionary clubs, much as would happen to the Cathedral of Saint John the Divine in New York City, where they now worship a giant whale. The revolutionaries shredded sacred books, using the paper as wadding for their cartridges, and burned confessional boxes for fuel. The relics of martyrs were ripped from their sacred resting places and thrown in a common pit, with one revolutionary leering about the bones of a male and female martyr making out together. Sacred vessels of the sacristy were thrown to the ground by the French mobs. Church bells, deemed a relic of fanaticism, were forbidden from being rung and were sometimes forcibly removed and melted down for armaments. Altars were destroyed or renamed altars of reason. The cross, deemed counter-revolutionary, was forbidden from display, with women being required to remove cross necklaces. Street signs, parks, and even cemeteries were stripped of crosses. One revolutionary club proposed outlawing celibacy. Joseph Fouché had been the headmaster at a Catholic school, but during the revolution he switched sides and became a leader of the de-Christianization campaign. Denouncing religion as superstitious and hypocritical, he proclaimed a new religion of the republic. He traveled from town to town to snuff out any remnants of Christianity, publicly dressing down priests as impostors who persist in continuing to perform their religious comedy. In September 1773, Fouché outlawed celibacy and gave priests one month to get married. In the town of Nevers, Fouché ordered that religious imagery on cemetery gates be replaced with the phrase. Death is an eternal sleep, a proposal enthusiastically adopted in Paris. In Lyon, the archbishop refused to swear allegiance to the Republic, and so he was removed, replaced by revolutionary bishop Antoine Lamourette. The people of Lyon responded to the de-Christianization campaign by clinging to their guns and religion. On account of the resistance, Convention Deputy Bertrand Barrère moved that Lyon, the second largest city in France, be destroyed, and a monument erected on the ashes that would proclaim, "Lyon waged war against liberty. Lyon is no more." Fouché happily accommodated him, working day and night for months to annihilate the entire city. Saying he was doing it for humanity's sake, Fouché famously proclaimed, 
Terror, salutary terror, is now the order of the day here. He arranged for batch after batch of bankers, scholars, aristocrats, priests, nuns, and wealthy merchants and their wives, mistresses, and children to be dragged from their homes and killed by firing squad. Fouché personally stripped even the revolutionary bishop La Mourette of his fake vestments and rode him through town on a donkey with a mitre on its head and a Bible and crucifix tied to its tail so the rabble could spit at and kick La Mourette. When Fouché was done, he proudly wrote to the convention that Christianity in the provinces had been struck down once and for all. Just a year earlier, at the beginning of the New Republic, La Mourette's idea had been to fuse revolutionary principles with Catholicism, much like today's pro-life Democrats. Even in the earliest days of the revolution, church property had been confiscated by the state, priests expelled from their posts, and the priesthood put up to popular vote. But La Mourette thought they could all still get along. And so, prattling about men of goodwill, in July 1792, Lamarette asked members of the assembly to embrace one another. There was hugging and kissing all around, and one year later, Lamarette was being ridden through town like a clown on the back of an ass. So, in addition to counter-revolutionary and vandalisme, the French Revolution gave us the expression for a false truce, the kiss of La Marette. Fouché's siege of Lyon became the revolution's standard operating procedure in the rest of France. In October 1793, the powerful Paris Commune decreed that ministers were not allowed to perform religious services or wear religious garb in public, forbade the sale or display of rosaries and other objects of superstition, and overturned the blue laws. That same month, the Committee of Public Instruction banned priests from being teachers. Nearly two hundred years before our own Supreme Court did, in lieu of religious holidays, which were banned, the revolutionaries put on fetes of reason with parades, dances, and public burnings of the symbols of nobility on a scale as never before. The first and most spectacular of these pagan rituals was held in November 1793 in the Notre Dame Cathedral, or as it was renamed, the Temple of Reason. The words "to philosophy" were carved into the facade of the magnificent Gothic cathedral. Stripped of crucifixes and other religious insignia, its altar was renamed the Altar of Reason, decorated with broken crowns and a shredded Bible. It was an ACLU fantasy come true. As a special highlight, Madame Momoro, a nun turned prostitute, portrayed the goddess of reason at the pagan festival of reason and paraded through the cathedral for all to worship. Four months later, the goddess of reason was guillotined. Fouché, Saint Just, Barère, the very revolutionaries who had propelled Momoro's ascent as a goddess to celebrate an end to religion, were on hand to applaud her beheading. 
at the fetes of reason being held throughout France, mannequins of priests were tied backwards on donkeys and ridden through the street. There were also obscene parodies of the clergy, with performers dressed as priests delivering mock sermons and dispensing scatological communions. Come receive your God, they taunted, wiping their behinds with paper hosts and throwing the host in a chamber pot. Here is your divinity. Come adore him for nothing. Here is a present of him. Religious marriages and funerals were discouraged and in some places banned entirely, replaced with civic versions of the same. The already married were encouraged to remarry in revolutionary ceremonies. One club proposed that eulogies at the civic funerals include a tax on the recently departed to distinguish them from religious funerals. This was not the American Revolution. This was the revolution of a mob. France's new leaders, fishmongers, cobblers, and butchers, and lots of lawyers and journalists, also set out to invent a new non-religious calendar. Created by the Committee of Public Instruction, the revolutionary calendar is exactly what one would expect from a government commission. It began with year one, which for simplicity was the previous year, 1792. Based on reason and nature, the revolutionary calendar had 12 30-day months divided into three 10-day weeks. Inasmuch as this didn't account for all the days in a year, the leftovers were tacked on as complementary days— Virtue Day, Genius Day, Labor Day, Reason Day, Rewards Day, and, on leap years, Revolution Day. George Orwell had it easy in some ways. The years were further divided into four-year spans called Franciades. Each month was given a crackpot name that was supposed to sound like a Greek or Latin word for seasonal attributes. Vendemiaire. Harvest, Brumaire, Mist, Freemare, Cold, Niveaux, Snow, Pluvios, Rain, Vantos, Wind, Germinal, Seeding, Floreal, Flowering, Prairial, Meadow, Mesidor, Summer Harvest, Thermidor, Heat, and Fructidor, Fruit. The new calendar also included an observance known as Kwanzaa, which to this day no one has ever been able to explain. The British recast the new French months as Slippy Nippy Drippy, Freezy Wheezy Sneezy, Showery Flowery Bowery, Heaty Weedy and Sweetie. Napoleon mercifully abolished the French Revolutionary Calendar on January 1, 1806, twelve years after its creation. Only the strong arm of a military dictatorship could save the French from themselves. Even clocks and personal names weren't spared this out-with-the-old insanity. Clocks were redesigned in decimal time, with a second being equal to 0.864 normal seconds, 100 seconds making one minute, which was now 86.4 seconds, and 100 minutes making an hour, 144 minutes to the rest of the world. 
This is why freedom lovers everywhere detest the metric system. Citizens were forced to drop their given names, which were deemed tyrannical and superstitious. One revolutionary proposed that the convention issue a decree abolishing all Christian names at once. The clubs urged people to adopt civic names, such as Brutus, the Roman who assisted in the knifing of his friend Caesar, prompting the dying Caesar to ask, in Shakespeare's words, a tu brute? But then, in another instant, the adopted Roman names fell out of fashion, were duly renounced, and were replaced with names from the preposterous French calendar, leading to such names as Fig Pumpkin Ligere. You know Figgy? He's my cousin. I'm Bree Surrender Vomit. Yes, the French Revolution was just like the American Revolution. The mob's consuming hatred of Marie Antoinette would finally be satiated with her public execution during the Reign of Terror. The revolutionaries had already come for the Queen's eight-year-old son, Louis the Seventeenth, in July 1793. In other important business that summer, the convention decreed that William Pitt, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, was the enemy of the human race. Antoinette put up a fight, refusing to relinquish her son, but young Louis was literally torn from her arms. Six months earlier, the morning after the king had been guillotined, Antoinette had wiped away her son's tears, instructing him that a king should not cry. She then set him down, stood, and saluted him as the new king. What awaited her young son was worse than the guillotine. He was turned over to an illiterate cobbler, Simone, who was instructed to re-educate the boy into hating his parents and loving the revolution. Young Louis was dressed in revolutionary clothes and made to curse his mother and sing revolutionary songs. Under the influence of the extreme left-wing journalist Jacques Hébert, Simone beat and brainwashed the boy into saying his mother had committed incest with him. By the fall, Marie Antoinette was ill, hemorrhaging constantly, and possibly dying from tuberculosis. She was only thirty-seven, but her hair had turned nearly white, and she appeared a much older woman. On August 1, 1793, she had been moved to a filthy prison called the Conciergerie, where she was prisoner 280. The former queen was put on display like an animal for inhuman wretches to stand outside her cell, continually vomiting forth insults against her. Antoinette had found out her husband had been guillotined when a guard mockingly called her the Widow Capet. She found out her best friend, the Princess Lamballe, had been executed when the princess's head was bounced on a pike outside her prison window. Her son had been torn away from her. Now she sat trapped in a prison cell with riffraff hurling invective at her in the liberal style. But the mob still saw Marie Antoinette as a threat to their liberty. This is how liberals would treat Sarah Palin. On October 13th, Antoinette was informed that her trial before the Revolutionary Tribunal would begin the next day. Her written request for time to prepare was ignored. 
And so the trial of Marie Antoinette commenced on October 14, 1793, before a jury of eleven men chosen from the lowest classes. To the delight of the spectators, Antoinette was accused of presiding over plots, conspiracies, and midnight orgies, and of being the scourge and the bloodsucker of the French. In the words of Scottish historian Thomas Carlyle, the witnesses against her were patriot washerwomen with much to say of plots and treasons. Antoinette answered each accusation with politeness, calmly revealing the emptiness of the charges against her. As Carlyle reports, her answers are prompt, clear, often of laconic brevity. Resolution, which has grown contemptuous without ceasing to be dignified, veils itself in calm words. You persist, then, in denial? My plan is not denial. It is the truth I have said, and I persist in that. Among the charges was the accusation by A. Baird that she kept a religious book containing a counter-revolutionary image of Jesus inscribed with the words, Heart of Jesus, have pity on us. Then came A. Baird's monstrous allegation that Antoinette's son had accused his mother and aunt of having sex with him, an idea A. Baird had himself implanted in the boy through his vile underling, Simone. Hébert testified, Simone said to me, I am surprised at young Capet committing so many indecencies, too gross to mention. Astonished at seeing this child so initiated in wickedness, I asked him who were his instructors. He replied with all the ingenuousness and candor of his age that he had learnt all these abominations of his mother and aunt. I shall not offend your ears with recounting the impurities which this child related. I shall content myself with saying that he has had an incestuous intercourse with his mother and his aunt, and that young Capet has been ill of a disorder which was brought on by these debaucheries. Antoinette ignored the vile accusation until a juror demanded that she answer it. Antoinette famously replied, I remain silent on that subject because nature holds all such crimes and abhorrence. I appeal to all mothers who are present in this auditory. Is such a crime possible? According to Carlyle, at that moment Robespierre cursed the stupidity of Hébert for making such a despicable charge and risking a sympathetic response from the jurors. Robespierre underestimated the inhumanity of a mob. For having passionately denied the charge, one spectator complained of Antoinette's arrogance, another of her pride, while one of the jurors sneered, A mother like you! When Antoinette said nothing, the jury was enraged by her silence and demanded an answer. When she answered, denying the grotesque accusation, the jury denounced her as arrogant. It's almost as if the mob would accept no answer she gave. As Le Bon says, a crowd accepts as real the images evoked in its mind, though they most often have only a very distant relation with the observed fact. 
The proceedings against Antoinette were irrelevant in any event. The verdict was preordained. After two days of the mock trial, Antoinette was declared guilty of treason and given a sentence of death scheduled for the next day. Asked if she had anything to say, Antoinette simply shook her head. Hours before her execution, the former queen wrote a letter to her sister-in-law, Princess Elizabeth, stained with her tears. An excerpt gives the lie to portrayals of Antoinette as a frivolous airhead. She begins, 16th October, 4.30 a.m. It is to you, my sister, that I write for the last time. I have just been condemned, not to a shameful death, for such is only for criminals, but to go and rejoin your brother. Innocent, like him, I hope to show the same firmness in my last moments. I am calm, as one is when one's conscience reproaches one with nothing. Antoinette raises the incest charge at her trial, asking Elizabeth to forgive her son. I have to speak to you of one thing which is very painful to my heart. I know how much pain the child must have caused you. Forgive him, my dear sister. Think of his age and how easy it is to make a child say whatever one wishes, especially when he does not understand it. It will come to pass one day, I hope, that he will better feel the value of your kindness and of your tender affection for both of my children. She concludes by reaffirming her faith and forgiving her enemies. I die in the Catholic, Apostolic, and Roman religion, that of my fathers, that in which I was brought up, and which I have always professed. Having no spiritual consolation to look for, not even knowing whether there are still in this place any priests of that religion, and indeed the place where I am would expose them to too much danger if they were to enter it but once, I sincerely implore pardon of God for all the faults which I may have committed during my life. I trust that in his goodness he will mercifully accept my last prayers, as well as those which I have for a long time addressed to him, to receive my soul into his mercy. I beg pardon of all whom I know, and especially of you, my sister, for all the vexations which, without intending it, I may have caused you. I pardon all my enemies the evils that they have done me. I bid farewell to my aunts and to all my brothers and sisters. I had friends. The idea of being forever separated from them and from all their troubles is one of the greatest sorrows that I suffer in dying. Let them at least know that to my latest moment I thought of them. Farewell, my good and tender sister. May this letter reach you. Think always of me. I embrace you with all my heart as I do my poor dear children. My God, how heartrending it is to leave them forever. Farewell, farewell. The mob had intended to extinguish the idea of the divine right of kings and queens, 
But Marie Antoinette's preternatural grace in the face of their barbarism might have caused some Frenchmen to reconsider whether God had a role in choosing their queen. The humiliations heaped on Antoinette continued to her last breath. To suppress sympathy from the crowd, she was stripped of her mourning clothes and ordered to wear a white smock. Bleeding badly, Antoinette needed to change her undergarments before leaving for the guillotine, but the gendarme guarding her refused to let her out of his sight even for this. To protect France against a beaten, half-starved, prematurely gray, tuberculosis-ridden, hemorrhaging widow, the full cavalry was called out, and the streets and bridges throughout Paris were lined with cannon and bayonet-toting soldiers. Shackled to a rope held by the executioner and surrounded by armed guards, Antoinette rode to the guillotine on a rough cart used to transport hardened criminals. The drive was long and slow, the better to allow the mob to taunt her. Her face was placid as she continued to pray quietly, showing neither fear nor defiance. On the scaffold, Marie Antoinette uttered her last words after accidentally stepping on the executioner's foot. Monsieur, I beg your pardon. After the guillotine fell, the executioner lifted Antoinette's head from the basket and the crowd cheered, Vive la République! Hébert, the revolutionary who had accused her of incest, said, the whore, for the rest, was bold and impudent to the very end. It's impossible to win with a mob. The queen was accused of frivolity, stupidity, licentiousness, every possible base quality. For exhibiting serenity in the face of a ravenous mob, she was deemed impudent. Hébert would later be executed himself, as was Antoinette's prosecutor, Antoine Quentin Fouquier de Tinville. Both showed far less dignity in their final moments than Antoinette. Hébert fainted repeatedly on the way to the guillotine, and Fouquier Tinville cried out, I'm the axe. You don't kill the axe. The killings went on mercilessly day after day without reason. Saint-Just demanded that people be guillotined not just for being traitors, but for being indifferent as well. This roving indictment was unknowingly adopted by key Obama advisors William Ayers and Bernadine Dorn in the SDS's anti-war pamphlet titled The Opposite of Moral is Indifferent. Politicians, unsuccessful generals, writers, nuns, the old, the young, the poor, and the well-to-do alike were sent to the National Razor. Great scientists and mathematicians were sent to the guillotine, too, on the grounds that the Republic does not need scientists. Before the end of the year, the mayor of Paris was guillotined, ninety priests were drowned, and in Dunkirk, one hundred fifty citizens guillotined. Entire families were guillotined. Girls overheard remarking that the killing was going overboard were sent to the guillotine. When one of the accused explained to the Revolutionary Tribunal that they had confused him with his brother, he was ordered executed because, We've got him. We haven't got his brother.
A woman proved to the court that she had been arrested in a case of mistaken identity, but was executed because, since she's already here, we might as well execute her too. In the first few months of 1794, more than 5,000 citizens of Lyon were executed. The revolutionaries began executing one another to avoid execution themselves. Consider the cases of Jacques-Pierre Brissot, Camille Desmoulins, and Robespierre. Brissot was a leading philosopher of the revolution. He had even been imprisoned by the king for his revolutionary writings. Although renowned for his incendiary speeches to the Jacobin Club, he belonged to the more moderate faction in the convention, the Girondists, the Blue Dog Democrats of the day. He had opposed, for example, executing the king, voting to keep him under house arrest instead. For that counter-revolutionary vote, the Montagnards, the Nancy Pelosi Democrats, issued a warrant for his arrest on June 2, 1793. Brissot was promptly guillotined at the age of 39. Brissot's principal accuser had been Desmoulins, a fellow writer and habitué of the Jacobin Club. Although Brissot had repeatedly leapt to the defense of Desmoulins and his crazed and often libelous writings, in 1793, Desmoulins turned his acid pen on his former mentor and friend. In a pamphlet titled Jacques-Pierre Brissot Unmasked, Desmoulins accused Brissot of being a spy and enemy of the revolution, resulting in Brissot's beheading. Desmoulins' next tract, Fragment of the Secret History of the Revolution, had helped incite the reign of terror, but when he proposed a clemency committee for some of the accused, his high school classmate, Robespierre, denounced Desmoulins. Robespierre referred to Desmoulins and his associates as Les Indurgents and demanded that Desmoulins' newspaper be burned. Desmoulins was sentenced to death on April 5, 1794, and executed the very same day. He was 34 years old. A few days later, Desmoulins' wife was guillotined. Robespierre was godfather to the Desmoulins' son. Both Robespierre and Brissot had been witnesses at their wedding. To speed things along, on June 10, 1794, the Committee on Public Safety issued its infamous 22 Prairial Decree, which dispensed with even the pretense of a trial before execution. No longer would the accused be entitled to lawyers or be asked any questions unless it was for the purpose of uncovering co-conspirators. Juries were instructed to decide cases on moral proof, not positive proof. Basically, an accusation was proof of guilt, and there was only one penalty, death. The prosecutor, Fouquier-Tanville, was delighted with these legal reforms, cheerfully reporting that heads were falling like tiles. Soon, one of those heads would be his own. Within the first two months after 22 Prairial, 1,500 people were guillotined. Having already run through the clergy and nobility, by now most of the executed were peasants. Robespierre's own execution was prompted by a rumor planted by Joseph Fouché. 
Fouché knew Robespierre was about to condemn him as an enemy to the revolution, so he told all the other members of the convention that they were on Robespierre's list. When Robespierre began to give his speech, denouncing traitors and calling for the arrest of all conspirators, the entire convention rose up to demand Robespierre's execution before he could mention any names. And that is how the worm Fouché survived to serve Napoleon. Robespierre had counted on the mob to save him. His allies at the Jacobin Club were so devoted to him, they vowed to drink hemlock should he be condemned to die. But when the time for action came and Robespierre needed the mob to rally and prevent his arrest, it rained. The rabble ran indoors and drank spirits instead of hemlock, inspiring Talleyrand's remark, Rain is counter-revolutionary. Robespierre, Saint-Just, and the rest of the leaders of the Reign of Terror were cornered and captured at City Hall. By virtue of the speedy procedures of 22 Prairial, they were sent to the guillotine the next day, July 28, 1794. At Robespierre's execution, the mob was cursing him as if he were an Austrian queen. That was the end of the Reign of Terror the Jacobin Club, and the French Republic. But it wasn't the end of the French Revolution, whose influence would spread around the globe, inspiring catastrophes from Russia and Germany to China and Venezuela. Though it was the inverse of the American Revolution, the ideas of the French Revolution would even take hold in some quarters of America. 8. The American Revolution. How to throw a revolution without losing your head. Our history is the exact opposite of the French Revolution and their wretched masses guillotining the aristocracy and clergy. It has become fashionable to equate the two revolutions, but they share absolutely nothing beyond the word revolution. The American Revolution was a movement based on ideas painstakingly argued by serious men in the process of creating what would become the freest, most prosperous nation in world history. The French Revolution was a revolt of the mob. It was the primogenitor of the horrors of the Bolshevik Revolution, Hitler's Nazi Party, Mao's Cultural Revolution, Pol Pot's slaughter, and America's periodic mob uprising, from Shays' Rebellion to today's dirty waifs smashing Starbucks windows whenever bankers come to town. The French Revolution is the godless antithesis to the founding of America. And yet, the New York Times has written... In this millennium, documents like the Magna Carta of 1215, the English Bill of Rights of 1689, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen of 1789, and the American Constitution of 1787 and the Bill of Rights of 1791, advanced the universality of human rights. This is on the order of saying, in this millennium, Things like mosquitoes, moths, and DDT advance the universality of bugs. Why not throw in the Soviet Constitution or Mao's Little Red Book? 
One small difference is that the Americans and the English did win freedom and greater individual rights with their documents. France's Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen led to bestial savagery, followed by another monarchy, followed by Napoleon's dictatorship, and then finally something resembling an actual republic. Eighty years later, in another editorial, the Times claimed that France had. Helped launch the worldwide democracy movement with its 1789 revolution against monarchy and feudal privilege, claiming the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen inspired Democrats throughout the late 18th century world and reinforced the ideas of America's own earlier revolution. The only movements inspired by the French Revolution were those of other dictators who discovered they could slaughter without mercy, provided they claimed to be acting in the name of the people. Both revolutions are said to have come from the ideas of Enlightenment thinkers: the French Revolution, informed by the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and the American Revolution, influenced by the writings of John Locke. This is like saying Presidents Reagan and Obama both drew on the ideas of 20th-century economists. Reagan on the writings of Milton Friedman and Obama on the writings of Paul Krugman. Locke was concerned with private property rights. His idea was that the government should allow men to protect their property in courts of law, as Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall realized, rather than have each man be his own judge. Rousseau saw the government as the vessel to implement the general will, and thereby create men who were more moral. Through the limitless power of the state, the government would force men to be free. The theories of the French revolutionaries, as summarized by historian Roger Hancock, were founded on respect for no humanity except that which they proposed to create. In order to liberate mankind from tradition, the revolutionaries were ready to make him altogether the creature of a new society, to reconstruct his very humanity to meet the demands of the general will. Contrary to the purblind assertions of liberals who dearly wish our founding fathers were more like the godless French peasants skipping around with human heads on pikes, our founding fathers were God-fearing descendants of Puritans and other colonial Christians. As Stephen Waldman writes in his definitive book on the subject, Founding Faith. The American Revolution was powerfully shaped by the Great Awakening, an evangelical revival in the colonies in the early 1700s, led by the famous Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards, among others. Aaron Burr, the third Vice President of the United States, was Edwards's grandson. The churches were so integral to the philosophy behind the revolution that there are books of Christian sermons on the American Revolution. In fact, it was the very irreligiousness of the French Revolution that appalled Americans and British alike, even before the bloodletting began. Americans celebrate the Fourth of July. The date, our written demand for independence from Britain, based on nature's God, was released to the world.
The French celebrate Bastille Day, a day when thousands of armed Parisians stormed a nearly empty prison, savagely murdered a half dozen guards, defaced their corpses, and stuck heads on pikes, all in order to seize arms and gunpowder for more such tumults. It would be as if this country had a national holiday to celebrate the L.A. riots. Among the most famous quotes from the American Revolution is Patrick Henry's "Give me liberty or give me death." Among the most famous slogans of the French Revolution is that of the Jacobin Club, "Fraternity or death," recast by Nicolas Sebastien de Chamfort, a Jacobin who turned against the revolution as "Be my brother or I'll kill you." Our revolutionary symbol is the Liberty Bell, first rung to herald the opening of the new Continental Congress in the wake of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, and rung again to summon the citizens of Philadelphia to a public reading of the just adopted Declaration of Independence. The symbol of the French Revolution is the national razor, the guillotine. Of the fifty-six signers of the Declaration of Independence, all died of natural causes in old age, with the exception of Button Gwinnett of Georgia, who was shot in a duel with a fellow officer during the Revolutionary War, though unrelated to the Revolution. Exactly fifty years after the Declaration of Independence was signed on July fourth, eighteen twenty-six, both Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died in their homes at age eighty-three and ninety, respectively. Apart from Gwinnett, only one of our founding fathers died of unnatural causes: Alexander Hamilton. He died in a duel with Aaron Burr because, as a Christian, Hamilton deemed it a greater sin to kill another man than to be killed, and before the duel, in writing, vowed not to shoot Burr. President after president of the New American Republic died peacefully at home for seventy-five years, right up until Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in eighteen sixty-five. Meanwhile, the leaders of the French Revolution all died violently a few years after the revolution began, guillotine by guillotine. The most mob-like incident associated with the American Revolution was the Boston Tea Party. With no beheadings, disembowelings, or defilement of corpses, or any corpses at all, the Tea Party wouldn't even merit a passing mention in a history of the French Revolution. It was debated for hours, was carefully planned to avoid damaging any property other than the tea, and was specifically defended for not being the act of a mob. The only event less violent than the original Boston Tea Party is a modern-day Tea Party rally. Moreover, unlike the French before the storming of the Bastille or Americans today, the rebels had no other ability to influence British policies. In that sense, they were in the position of pro-lifers in modern America, with no options for affecting the law except violence. Forget the cheerful retelling of the Boston Tea Party in children's books. That event had little to do with the success of the American Revolution. Coming three long years before the Declaration of Independence, the Boston Tea Party instigated nothing 
other than repressive measures by the British Parliament in closing the Boston port and putting the entire town under martial law. The Boston Tea Party was considered an embarrassment by many of our founding fathers and was not celebrated at all for another half century. Benjamin Franklin insisted that the tea be paid for, and a collection was taken up and offered to the India Tea Company. George Washington disapproved of the Boston Tea Party, making a point of saying, "Not that we approve their conduct in destroying the tea, even when complaining of Britain's retaliatory actions in response to the Tea Party." America's friends in the British Parliament, such as Edmund Burke, were appalled by the Tea Party, unable to keep defending the Americans after this destruction of private property. Only when the Americans promised to repay the tea company for the ruined tea were America's British partisans able to take up the rebels' cause again. The reason most of our founding fathers opposed the Boston Tea Party was that it seemed to be the act of a mob. Interestingly, even Samuel Adams, who is believed to be an instigator of the Tea Party, immediately defended the raid by arguing that it was not the action of a mob, but a reasoned protest when all other avenues of redress had failed. Paul Revere, who participated in the Tea Party, made sure to replace a broken lock on one of the ships and severely punished a participant who stole some of the tea for his private use. Though they destroyed the tea, they fervently believed in otherwise following the law, much like the overwhelmingly law-abiding abortion clinic protesters today. John Adams, Samuel's second cousin, privately approved of the Tea Party, exulting in a letter: "The die is cast. The people have passed the river and cut away the bridge." But even he stressed how calm and orderly the town of Boston was immediately following the Tea Party. Just a few years earlier, in 1770, John Adams had famously defended the British soldiers who shot and killed Americans in what came to be called the Boston Massacre, and Paul Revere testified for the defense. Five Americans died in the incident, but Adams argued to the jury that the redcoats were justified in firing because they had been attacked by a mob. Although Adams blamed Britain's policy of quartering soldiers for provoking the citizens of Boston, he blamed the mob for instigating the violent altercation. In his closing argument, Adams portrayed the crowd as a howling rabble that shouted, "Kill them! Kill them!" and threw every species of rubbish at the soldiers. We have entertained a great variety of phrases to avoid calling this sort of people a mob. Some call them shavers. Some call them geniuses. The plain English is, gentlemen. It was most probably a motley rabble of saucy boys, negroes, and mulattoes, Irish teagues, and outlandish jacktars. And why should we scruple to call such a people a mob? I can't conceive, unless the name is too respectable for them. The American jury acquitted the British officer involved, as well as six of his eight soldiers. After the verdict, there was no rioting or looting. All was calm.
Respect for Adams increased, and he would later say that his defense of the British soldiers for firing on the mob was one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. This country's founders were strongly against the mob, as are today's Tea Party patriots. Noticeably, modern Tea Partiers haven't engaged in one iota of property destruction in contradistinction to nearly any gathering of liberals. Violence and property destruction are specialties of the left. As the New Yorker reported, a 26-year-old Tea Partier from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology thought about printing out a copy of the entire 2000-page 2010 health care bill and throwing it in the Boston Harbor, but changed his mind when he found out it would be against the law. That's why, until recently, it has been liberals pushing the Boston Tea Party as a crucial event in the American Revolution, while conservatives have preferred to celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Bicentennial of the Constitution. Liberals hate the idea of a revolution by gentlemen, which is why they celebrate hairy, foul-smelling revolutionaries like Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, and Susan Sarandon. They want to elevate the rabble and place the spectacularly unique American Revolution in the tradition of France's mob revolt. Thus, for example, Russell Bourne, a regular guest on NPR and PBS, has written a sad little book titled Cradle of Violence, How the Boston Waterfront Mobs Ignited the American Revolution. More accurately, the waterfront mobs nearly derailed the revolution. Fear of mobs was a primary rationale of the loyalists. Even those wishing independence from Britain worried that without British protection, the mobs might run wild. As the left-wing historian Howard Zinn admits, the well-to-do merchants of the Sons of Liberty worried about maintaining control over the crowds at home. Consider the case of Lord Hugh Percy. He had been a fervent supporter of the Americans, taking their side repeatedly in the British Parliament, including voting against the hated Stamp Act. When he arrived in Boston as a brigadier general of the British Army in 1774, Percy was a strong advocate of American independence. But he took one look at the Boston waterfront and changed his mind, so shocked was he by the mobbings he witnessed. This is why, today, we know Patrick Henry's name. We know Paul Revere's name. We know the names of John Hancock, Thomas Jefferson, and of all the other signatories to the Declaration of Independence. We know the names of the authors of The Federalist. We know the name of pamphleteer Thomas Paine. We don't know the names of the low-born workers at the Boston Harbor engaging in tumult and property destruction other than by the general catch-all term, Celtics fans. The men behind the American Revolution, the militias, the Minutemen, and the signers of the Declaration of Independence, as well as the framers of the Constitution, were the very opposite of a mob. Today, we would call them Republicans. They were educated, aristocratic, property holders, doctors, lawyers, ministers, and other respectable tradesmen with everything to lose should the revolution fail. 
The Minutemen were called that because they could be ready for battle in a minute, having been preparing for years to launch a disciplined military response. They were not a rabid mob, full of festering hatreds, ready to dash out and impale their fellow citizens— and virtually none of these brave men under arms, I might add, were dating one another. They were a citizen army with ranks, subordination, coordination, drills, and supplies. The spark that ignited the first battles of the revolution was the news that British troops, who were under constant surveillance by Paul Revere and others, were on the move, planning to arrest Sam Adams and John Hancock that night in Lexington. Luckily, the Minutemen had planned ahead and were not lunatics running around in a burst of manic energy guillotining people, like the French. Because the Minutemen had been watching and waiting, they knew exactly what the British were up to. Indeed, Paul Revere knew more about the Redcoats' plans that night than the British soldiers themselves did. Although most Whig leaders had fled Boston to avoid arrest, a few remained, including Dr. Joseph Warren. Through his confidential source, probably the American wife of British General Thomas Gage, Warren confirmed the British plans to arrest the two revolutionary leaders. By prearrangement, Warren contacted Paul Revere. Warren had already sent two other messengers to warn Adams and Hancock. One was William Dawes, the other is unknown to history. All three men took different routes to Lexington in order to increase the odds that at least one of them would make it. Why? Yes, that is correct, because they had planned ahead. Fearing that none of them would make it past the British across the Charles River out of Boston, Revere had arranged with the sexton of a Boston church to signal the countryside with lanterns in the steeple window. The British were going by sea, so the sexton sneaked past the British regulars in Boston, climbed the 154 steps of the Anglican Christchurch, whose minister was a loyalist, and held two lanterns outside the steeple window. The Charlestown Whigs, waiting and watching, saw the brief flicker of two lights in the distance and knew the British were leaving by boat. They sprang to action, preparing to receive Revere and provide him with a horse. It is precisely this advance preparation that is celebrated in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, One If By Land and Two If By Sea. By contrast, the French revolutionary ditty, It Shall Be, includes the line, Take the aristocrats to the lantern and hang them. Every detail of Paul Revere's ride had been meticulously arranged with scores of other American patriots. Even the horse Revere rode, Brown Beauty, had been carefully chosen by the Whigs as the best horse for the job. And indeed, Brown Beauty was so sure-footed, she allowed Revere to escape his first British ambush that night. Revere alerted Whig leaders in towns all along his ride, setting off a chain of communication to the Minutemen throughout the countryside. The town leaders, doctors, lawyers, and ministers spread the alarm with bells, drums, cannon, and musket fire. The astonishing speed of this communication, historian David Hackett Fisher writes, did not occur by accident. It was the result of careful preparation. 
At around midnight, Revere arrived at the house where Adams and Hancock were staying and was promptly rebuffed by the Lexington militiamen standing guard who told Revere to stop making so much noise or he'd wake up everyone. Noise, Revere replied. You'll have noise enough before long. The regulars are coming. With Adams and Hancock awake and Dawes arriving half an hour later, the men went to a tavern to talk things over with the Lexington militia. The third man, whoever he was, never arrived. Wondering why the British were mobilizing so many troops for a simple arrest, they soon realized the British were planning to seize the Americans' artillery in Concord that night, too. Once again, Revere and Dawes mounted their horses and took off for Concord, planning to wake up the surrounding towns. They immediately ran into a young, wealthy doctor from Concord, Samuel Prescott. A high son of liberty, Prescott offered to ride with them since he knew the terrain and he knew the people. Halfway to Concord, they ran into some redcoats. Outnumbered, they insanely tried to bolt past the regulars. The British didn't shoot, but didn't let Revere's group pass either, shouting, God damn you! Stop! If you go an inch further, you are a dead man! They were taken prisoner and brought to join other American prisoners captured that night. While being led off the path, Prescott and Revere spurred their horses, taking off in different directions. Revere's route took him straight into a group of redcoats, but by distracting their captors, he allowed Prescott to escape, across a wall and into the backwoods he knew so well. As Revere had done before him, Prescott would set off a chain of warnings to the militias in the towns all around Concord. As the redcoats surrounded Revere, Dawes escaped, pretending to be one of the regulars in pursuit of a fleeing rebel. Hello, my boys, I've got two of them. He got away, but his horse soon threw him, and his journey was over. Both the Redcoats and their famous prisoner were remarkably polite to each other, with Revere later recalling that the British officer in command was much of a gentleman. Surprised to have captured the well-known rebel leader, Paul Revere, the British began interrogating him and were stunned by his candor. Revere openly told them about British plans that night of which they were unaware. Hoping to keep them away from Hancock and Adams, he warned the British soldiers that they would be killed if they went anywhere near Lexington Green, where up to 500 militiamen were mobilizing. The other prisoners listening to Revere were astonished at how boldly he spoke to his captors. When one captain put a gun to Revere's head and demanded that he tell the truth, an indignant Revere said he didn't need to be threatened. I call myself a man of truth, he said, and you have stopped me on the highway and made me a prisoner I knew not by what right. I will tell the truth, for I am not afraid. The rattled redcoats began to ride their prisoners toward Lexington, but when they heard gunfire on the outskirts of town, seeming to confirm Revere's warnings of an armed militia, they released their prisoners and hurried back to Boston. They weren't going to start a war without clearer orders. Hancock and Adams were safe, the rebels' military supplies hidden, and the British about to be amazed.
The face-off in Lexington would not have given Americans much hope that day. British troops blew past the disorganized and outnumbered militia without much difficulty. But Concord was a different story. By the time the British reached Concord, militias from dozens of towns had received the call and were ready for battle. The Americans punched back so hard that the British retreated all the way back to Boston. The British fought bravely, but the Americans overwhelmed them. Shell-shocked and bleeding, redcoats began surrendering on the trek back to Boston. An old American woman picking weeds accepted the surrender of six British soldiers that day, telling them, "If you ever live to get back, you tell King George that an old woman took six of his grenadiers prisoner." That woman, of course, was TV's Betty White. About a hundred British were killed in the Battle of Concord, many of them officers, and another hundred were wounded. Only fifty Americans were killed and thirty-nine wounded. Having seen the Minutemen fight, even Lord Percy, who had been disgusted by the Boston mobs, had a new view of the rebels. He said they had attacked with perseverance and resolution. Adding, "Whoever looks upon them as an irregular mob will find himself very much mistaken." If the American rebels had not planned every detail in advance, practicing, training, mapping strategies, gathering information, preparing a vast network of patriots to spread the warning, and employing endless contingency plans, the British might have crushed the incipient rebel forces on April nineteenth, seventeen seventy-five. Instead, victory belonged to the Americans in the first battle of the Revolutionary War. Paul Revere's ride is the seminal event of our Revolutionary War. It bears no resemblance to screeching washerwomen beheading guards at the Bastille. The American Revolution was unique not only for the strategy and planning involved, but also for the explosion of literature explaining the reasons for the revolution. Perhaps foremost in the pamphlets defending the war was Thomas Paine's Common Sense, in which Paine methodically addressed each of the arguments against rebellion point by point for all to see and critique. In addition to Paine's common sense, there are virtual encyclopedias of erudite Christian sermons given on behalf of the American Revolution. Christian ministers were a crucial part of the war effort, inspiring the local militias. Before the Battle of Concord, the town's minister William Emerson urged on the outnumbered rebels as the redcoats approached, saying, "Let us stand our ground." If we die, let us die here. He slapped one terrified young soldier on the back and said, "Stand your ground, Harry. Your cause is just, and God will bless you." Harry fought bravely for the rest of the day. The American Revolution was fought by thinkers and debaters, constantly prattling about the reasons for the war. Although they were rebels, the Americans were very chatty about their revolution. By contrast, mob uprisings like the French Revolution are sparked by tumult, pandemonium, and violence, not thoughtful sermons and pamphlets. There wasn't much literature explaining the French Revolution, apart from Paine's hapless attempts, which would nearly lead to his beheading. 
The revolutionaries were too busy rushing out to desecrate Notre Dame, murder a priest, or do some other new wild thing to have the time to read or think. Bernadine Dorn and the rest of the SDS would have fit right in with the filthy Jacobins without even having to change clothes. In contrast to the French, who celebrate the spontaneous emotion of their revolution, the storming of the Bastille, the storming of Versailles, the storming of the Tuileries, Americans celebrate the Minutemen's preparedness, Paul Revere's methodically planned ride, and the vast literature arguing America's case, especially the specific demand for separation from the British in the Declaration of Independence. The reason our revolution was the opposite of a directionless, violent mob running wild in the streets is that the dominant American culture was Anglo-Saxon and Christian. Even while fighting the British, as we now call them, Americans considered themselves British with the rights of Englishmen who bore the tradition of the Magna Carta. In fact, one rebel explained that he was fighting the Redcoats to protect his house by saying, an Englishman's home is his castle. They just wanted to be free of meddling from the crown. Having been born and raised in the distant and expansive American colonies, Americans objected to the high-handed way King George was dealing with them. They didn't hate the king— to the contrary, John Adams and Alexander Hamilton dispassionately acknowledged that the English political system was better than most others in the world. Our revolutionary document, the Declaration of Independence, is a religious document through and through, with the colonies demanding rights entitled to them by the laws of nature and of nature's God. As founding father James Wilson put it, the will of God was the supreme law of nations. Consequently, the Declaration cites certain unalienable rights given to men by their Creator. For the rectitude of their intentions, the drafters appealed to the supreme judge of the world. The Declaration reads like a legal brief with causes of action and prior attempts at resolution enumerated and a specific demand for relief. We'd like to go our own way, please, Supreme Judge of the World. One can read the Declaration of Independence centuries later and understand the whole point, admitting that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, our declaration sets forth a long train of abuses and usurpations by the crown. The purpose of the document was to explain America's case to the world because a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Manifestly, the French couldn't care less that the rest of the world was appalled by them, stating that facts submitted to a candid world would prove that the king was attempting to create an absolute tyranny over these states. The declaration concisely listed abuse after abuse, including the crown's quartering soldiers, protecting the king's soldiers from charges of murder, and depriving Americans, in many cases, of trial by jury. These were rights well familiar to the British, inasmuch as they came from English common law and were enjoyed by British citizens.
significantly among the declarations enumerated grievances was that the king had encouraged mobs. As the document puts it, the king had excited domestic insurrections amongst us, including uprisings by merciless Indian savages whose idea of warfare was an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. The Americans' complaints were clear, as was their objective, separation from the British crown in order to establish their own government. This was not a rash decision. As the authors explained, they had tried other approaches. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms, but those requests were answered only by repeated injury. Fifty-two of the fifty-six signers of the American Declaration were Orthodox Christians who believed in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or, as they would be known today, an extremist, fundamentalist hate group. The Declaration was written on behalf of the thirteen colonies unanimously and signed by each member of the Continental Congress, name by name, beginning with the famously supersized signature of John Hancock. These weren't anonymous brutes chopping off the breasts of princesses in pursuit of fraternity or some other amorphous concept. Our revolutionary document was inspired by God, as put by John Adams, a signatory and second president of the United States. He said, The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. The French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen was inspired by a paranoid hypochondriac who denied divine revelation and original sin, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The very logic and clarity of the Declaration of Independence were qualities specifically rejected by Rousseau. One of the errors of our age, Rousseau said, is to use reason in bare form, as if men were only mind. Yes, much better to fire up a crowd with emotional appeals. Thus, Rousseau recommended using signs that speak to the imagination— complaining that words make too weak an impression. One speaks to the heart far better, he said, through the eyes than through the ears. This is the essence of how one riles up a mob, by using images, not words. Republicans drove the car into a ditch. Rousseau perfectly describes the governing strategy of all mob leaders, from Robespierre to Fidel Castro to today's Democratic Party. The mob's revolutionary document, France's Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, is precisely what one would expect from people who prefer images to logic. The document enumerates lots of abstract...